The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have another extra special guest. Edward Chancellor is a legend amongst financial journalists and historians. His book on the history of speculation and manias and bubbles, Devil Takes the Hindmost, is just legendary. It is the full history of financial speculation. His latest book could not be more timely, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest. It's all about the history of interest rates, money lending, investing speculation funded by banks and loans and credit. According to Chancellor, interest is the single most important feature of finance, both ancient and modern, and it's how we allow transactions to take place across time. I found this conversation to be fascinating, informative. He is a, a one of a kind, and I'm confident you will find this to be fascinating. Also, with no further ado, my conversation with Edward Chancellor. Let's start with your background in academia. So you study history at Trinity College. What is a master of philosophy in enlightenment um, and history from Oxford? Am I mangling that in my um, American? Well, we call it MPhil. It's a shorter version of a doctorate or DPhil. I wrote a you know a research paper, and you know and one had exams at the same time. And it was originally created as a sort of academic teaching degree, but then got somewhat usurped by the PhD. And that was where I was going to go. It looks like you were setting yourself up for a career as an academic. Uh, I thought about it, and then I was invited with the other graduate students to my history professor's house on the outskirts of Cambridge. And I thought, well, if this is where, <laughs> this, is where <laughs> this is where the, the guy who's, you know, who's got to the top at Oxford lives, I'm going to go and get a job in the city of London. <laughs> so, so that's what I did. And I, I sort of didn't, my thinking on leaving, you know, on leaving academia is that if I need to earn a living, I might as well make money from money, which is, you know, what Aristotle disapproved of. So I, it was a sort of anti-Aristotelian act of, of going into the city. That's really interesting. So you go into the city of London, and is that where you began at Lazard Brothers, or how did yeah, that part of your career start? I started start? At, at Lazard's. No at, relationship to the U.S. Lazard. Yeah, yeah, no, they're all, they call it Lazard Brothers in London, Lazard Frere in, in Paris, mm -hmm. and... and Lazard Frey here. So they now all been drawn together. But when I was there, there were sort of interconnected shareholdings that were joining the different branches together. I went into what's called corporate finance. You know, people would see now as sort of M&A department. In the 1990s in London, that had to be pretty busy time. Well, I was actually in a sort of subgroup there, which was called corporate strategy. Mm -hmm. We were sort of doing, our job, our job was basically to give sort of uh, strategic advice to Lazard clients, which would generate capital raising mergers and um, 
debt financing for these companies. It was sort of self-interested advice. But I, I didn't last very long there because I sort of, I didn't like corporate finance. I sort of, I felt they were sort of ruthless, cynical, uh, always looking for a deal. And I remember once, you know, one of my colleagues says that uh, a friend, one of the French Lazard Frere uh, partners was asked by a sort of junior, how much should we tell our client to bid? And the French partner said, the price is right, which hurts our client. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, there's a lot of cynicism in corporate finance. I didn't find it intellectually interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, you had all those deal books, you can imagine. And Tedious, was, not not thrilling. Yeah, and I was sort of grunt level. Sure. And um, you know, I came to the point where I thought, well, I'd sooner be driving a bus than <laughs> right. continuing with so, this career. So how did you transition from Lazard to GMO? So it wasn't a, a straight path. I, When I was at Lazard, I heard you can't work in finance without people talking about the great speculative Mm -hmm. bubbles of the past so people you know would mention the sort of british railway mania of the 1840s and tulip mania and so forth and i le i i left with no more money than i had when i came in and i decided i would write a history of financial speculation uh off my own bat i you know i'd read the other stuff you know kindleberger sure. Braith, and that sort of stuff and i still felt there was room to write a new book. The space had not been mined to exhaustion. I think I think Kendallberg is very good, but he's, if you remember, he, he's writing a sort of taxonomy of the bubble. And as an historian, I wanted to write the narrative of the mm -hmm. bubble. Now, you're probably aware, you know, Charles Mackay's Extraordinary Popular Delusion. Sure. I mean, that's your 1840s narrative, and it's you know, highly inaccurate. and Really? Yeah, it's full of sort of legend. You know, he talks about the black tulip and stories of people uh -huh. bite, you know, people biting, uh, you know, I mean, the, with the tulip, well, he talk, talks about, you know, a sailor coming along and, and mistaking a tulip bulb for an onion and eating it and it turning out to be a, um, a you know, a rare tulip bulb worth the, the value Hundreds of, of thousands of dollars. Amsterdam townhouse. <laughs> and um, so, and Mackay is also, you know, you, you know, from a sort of investment perspective, you, you don't really get a proper picture of what's going on. Um, so in some ways, I was sort of writing, and then obviously, you know, Mackay writing, he only covered Tulip Mania, South Sea Bubble, and mm -hmm. Mississippi Bubble. So I thought one could, you know, write a sort of arc of financial speculation up to the current day, and then in the course of writing it, the dot com bubble started to form. So that made it more pressing and in a way more interesting because you could, you know, when You'd I was see it in real time. Exactly, but also you could see these parallels. So I was writing about the British railway mania of the 1840s. Now, railways were this you know, revolutionary technology that was going to change the world, going to change civilization, the speed with which people... And you know, roughly at the same time, you remember uh, Mary Meeker at Morgan Stanley sure. came out with the internet report that was being sold right. in Barnes & Noble in '96. And, you know, I, I wrote in the book, but also, you know, some journalism in 96 in the FT saying, hey, you know, this Internet stuff looks a lot like the railway uh, mania of the 1840s. And, and you know, 96 hadn't really started 
getting going, for, you know. Um, As a reminder, Alan Greenspan's infamous irrational exuberance speech was late in 96. Yeah, December. Yeah, and it, we were really just ramping up for the next couple of years. Yes. So the book comes out, I think, June 1999, is that right? Yeah, correct. That, that's fairly auspicious timing. So it came out with Farrah Strauss and Shiro mm -hmm. here, and I said to Jonathan Glass, the editor, you've got to get this out quickly. And FSG, to their credit, reduced the publication time from their normal one year to six months. You still uh, had, you know, 15 months. Or, well, let's see, June, you had nine months before things really topped out. Yeah, well, as you know, bearish messages are often a tiny bit early. So even, uh, I, it might, was it better to have left the publication date later? I, I don't know. I mean, do you remember um, a bit later... Robert Siller's Irrational Exuberance came out. 2000, right? Yeah, so I was probably sort of eight, nine months before Schiller. But it's a book. It's not, you know, you're not picking the top or bottom. A book is a multi-year process, and it's, you know, th it could have been Dow 36,000, which came out around the same time. It was, so, yeah, yeah, no, I, I well, the first thing I spoke at was a Goldman Sachs asset management conference, strangely enough, in a place called Carefree Arizona, uh -huh. and the Dow 36,000 people were there. Mm -hmm. And I was saying, you know, this is a great bubble, which is about to burst. This would have been, you know, in late 99. And I said, you know, we're here in Carefree Arizona, but around the corner is a place called Truth or Consequences. That's right. <laughs> and, you know, perhaps we should really be meeting there. You can imagine, you give a bearish message at a bullish investment conference and no one listens to you and not a single one of the partners or anyone like that thanked me or really uh, for the talk it was it was just, you know completely I felt completely blanked but actually the, I later met one of the diet 36,000 people mm -hmm. Kevin Haskett I met him he's actually a very nice fellow and he did when I met him let's say in 2010 he acknowledged that they'd got things wrong James Glassman and Kevin, Kevin Hassett. Hassett. Now, not too long ago, just before the pre-pandemic period, like late 2010s, they kind of came out when Dow first crossed 36,000, maybe it was 21. Um, they kind of came out and said, see, we told you. And it's like, you know, uh, if you write a book, Dow 100,000, well, I guess you just got to come back in 60 years Someone, to say, I told you, know, you so, but 23 years later, you don't get credit for saying you could buy stocks right here, right before they collapse. Yeah, but the other point is that you know, when when people are saying, oh, well, I mean, I think Wall Street Journal had an editorial, you know, down mm -hmm. 30,000, 36,000. That's how you know it's going to be it looked, wrong. Uh, yeah, but then if you look at the valuation of the market at the time, mm -hmm. the market was the U.S. market at the end of last year. So probably where on the sh what we call the Schiller P/E ratio, the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, which is the sort of most reliable long-term valuation measure, it was at its highest level at the end of last year, than at any point apart from the last stages of the dot-com bubble. Mm -hmm. So higher than in 1929, um, and higher during the 1950s when markets very expensive. Um, and, you know, what we also know, <laughs> those of us who worked in investment, is uh, that your future returns are inversely related to the valuation level. So perhaps every time we get to day 36,000, you can expect a long period of 
decline. I mean, in the end, inflation will and accrued earnings will mean that we'll get to thirty six thousand one day on a sustained basis, right. but just probably not in the next decade or so. That's interesting. So you write the book; it's published to great acclaim. How did you go from that and other writings to GMO? So, ninety nine, the quant shops, Jeremy Grant and GMO. Rob Arnott, First Quadrant, now Research Affiliates, Cliff Asnes, AQR, AQR, they were in trouble. They were not buying into the TMT bubble. They were buying their beloved value stocks. And no one was, everyone just saying they were idiotic quants and that that approach was no longer to work. So then they found that they saw this book came out saying, you know, look, the You'll be right eventually. No, no, no. Look, that the dot-com bubble looks a lot like these historical bubbles. So all of them independently, Jeremy, Rob, Cliff, read the book and got in touch with me. And you know, Jeremy uh, became, you know, I, st- I became more of a friend. But I didn't go straight to GMO. I, I then I was doing journalism for uh, Breaking Views, which was a sort of dot-com startup, FX. FT people, mm-hmm. um, now owned by Reuters, and started doing some. I, then I did some research for Crispin Odi, who's a London hedge fund mm-hmm. guy. And so Crispin and I were having, I don't know, lunch in late 2003. Crispin said, we, we were talking about what was going on in the markets and the world. And Crispin said, it's really all about credit. And I said, yeah, I agree. And he said, well, why don't I just pay you to write a report and to analyze what's going on? So I spent the next sort of nine months looking at what was going on in the U.S. and the U.K. and the credit boom and real estate boom and development of, you know, of, of securitized lending and subprime so forth. And then I put that out. I, said, I did that for Crispin, but I also sold it as a report but not for wide distribution, sort of $1,000 a shot. Mm-hmm. And that went to sort of a few people. I gave a copy to Jeremy as a present. And then I was having lunch, Jeremy, in Boston. I was I was working for Breaking Views in New York, and we were we were returning to England after a couple of years. I was having lunch, Jeremy, in the in, um, summer of 2007, just after the Bear Stearns mm-hmm. hedge fund started blowing up. And Jeremy said, well, at least there's enough structural redundancy in the banking system. And I said, what the hell makes you think that? <laughs> and what was his response? Well, he sort of, you know, he thought about it. And then I went home. I went, we have a house in Cape Cod. And I went home. Jeremy called and said, would you like to join the asset allocation team? And That's um, a hard thing to say no to. Well, I said no initially. Uh-huh. Um, and then went back to England. Then he called again. And, you know, because these investors sometimes say, like, throw job offers around, they're not right. very serious. And then he called a couple of months later. And then I decided, yeah, I would take it. And Jeremy wanted a, obviously, I'd done a lot of work on the credit boom. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also wanted sort of, a not, I said, you know, to Jeremy, I'm not a quant. Uh, and lot you know, GMA is, so to speak, a quant shop. It's filled with quants, right? Filled with quants, yeah. And Jeremy said, I'm not a quant either. <laughs> so he wanted a sort of non-quanty view, uh, input into the asset allocation process. And I assume that worked out pretty well. Um, 
Yeah, yes and no. They did they did well during the financial crisis. Yeah, I mean, relatively no speaking. thanks to me. I, they, they were well positioned, positioned already. Yeah, uh, they had you know the equity allocation. I mean, I don't want to blow my own trumpet uh, too much uh, because most of the positions were in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, quality funds were you know uh, which more defensive uh, and less leveraged and uh, low allocation to. Um, a relatively low allocation to equities, and then the hedge funds, you know, sort of long-short positions that benefited in the the financial crisis. My only real contribution that year was right at the beginning, <laughs> when I the first week I joined GMO, I'd written a piece in an FT column I had at the time saying, don't believe this story that emerging markets can decouple from the rest of the world. And um, GMO was still sitting on a massive emerging market uh, position in in the asset allocation team. And I tried to sort of chip away at that with Jeremy and not having much success. And then a um, the CLSA Asian economist called Jim Walker, I don't know if you ever came across no. him, he a sort of Scotsman with a sort of voice like a Presbyterian minister. He was also on the sort of anti-decoupling story and he, you know, he was bearish on EM and I, I dragged Jeremy to Jim Walker and he said that you know, this Scotsman with his gloomy voice was more effective at persuading him than I, I with my languid English drool. And then Jeremy went out and sold all the emerging positions. Wow, really? Several billion dollars. Uh, and within, I don't know, two months, he bought them back at half the price. So you earned your keep that yeah, year? Yeah, I mean, only by... I think it was Jim Walker who did the thing, but at least I got Jeremy. You got him in front of him. I that's absolutely say, it. Yeah, so the, and that sort of, I suppose I used to say that sort of paid my way while I was there. Huh, absolutely fascinating. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So let's talk about what's with this quote that I like from a 19th century trader, James Keene. All life is speculation. The spirit of speculation is born with men. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, the act of speculation is to look out into the future. The word speculator is um, Latin and was a, a Roman military guard whose job was to look out and see whether the... the Speculate on danger. The Goths were coming over the hill. Um, And particularly when you get into what financial markets, the capitalist world, you're always trying to anticipate what's going on. So in in that sense, even people who describe themselves as investors Mm -hmm. are also necessarily speculators. But when we talk about hmm. speculation, we often talk about sort of unfounded or irrational or dangerous gambling type tendencies. So that leads me to the question, what is the actual difference between speculation 
and investing. Clearly, they're both a gamble on the future. Is it about the amount of risk taken and the psychology of the person involved, or is it something a little more quantitative? Uh, you, you've read Schwed's Where Are All the Customers' Yachts. Mm -hmm. And do you remember there he says, the difference between speculation and investment is that speculation is an attempt, normally unsuccessful, to turn a little amount of money into a lot, whereas an investment is an attempt, normally successful, to make sure a lot of money doesn't, <laughs> doesn't become a little. Fred Schwed, right? Is that who wrote Fred that? Fred Schwed, yes. Right. So um, embedded in that is <laughs> the idea is that the speculator is, is going to be taking more risk. And, and and not concerned with preservation of capital the way an investor might be? Is that yeah, what's embedded mean, in so that? So the speculator, you know, I call the book Devil Take the Hindmost, mm -hmm. and that is really a reflection of the you know what they call the greater fool theory mm -hmm. of investment is I'll buy a, um, a Shibu Inu coin mm -hmm. or an NFT and sell it to you, Barry. Well, no, I'll buy it because I think Barry's a bigger sucker than I am and that he'll take it off me from a bigger price. That's a sort of Ponzi scheme or pyramid mm -hmm. chain letter dynamic to a speculative bubble. And the other aspect of the speculator is he often gets lured into envisioning how the world will be and gets drawn into these new technologies, You know whether it's uh, you know, radios or cars in the 1920s or mm. internet um, stocks in the 1990s and various, you know, types of, you know, the, well, think of all those SPACs and electric sure. vehicles of the last couple of years. And the speculator, the trouble is that they look into the future and they draw, they imagine the future is actually much closer than it turns out to be. Mm. And so you could say that they're operating with a sort of hyperbolically discounting the future or just say they have too low a discount rate. So they're drawing everything forward. And you know, even with the Internet, you know, which, as we know, established and changed everyone's life within a very short period of time, even then it, you know, it didn't stop the NASDAQ you know, coming down by more than 75%. Right. A lot of these dot-com businesses flaming out. But by the way, everybody talks about the internet happening so quickly. It, it began in the 1980s uh, as a way to survive a nuclear attack and be able to launch the retaliatory codes through DARPA. Yeah, yeah. So it, it took decades to be commercialized and more decades to become uh, more broadly adopted. So if you were an internet investor in the late 80s or early 90s, most of those companies uh, didn't do well. What I didn't cite in Devil Take the Home Most was some research from a um, a guy, I think he was at Bell Labs at the time, called Andrew Odzlico, who's now at the University of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And he and a colleague worked out in 98-99 that the projections for uh, internet traffic growth uh, that the likes of WorldCom, you know, the big telecoms company, were saying that internet traffic growth was doubling every couple of months. And Odzico found out that actually the rate of growth was 
uh, slower than that. It's still doubling, but I think once every six months or so. Mm-hmm. And the result was that getting in the mania, people get over-fixated on growth. They have growth projections, over-optimistic growth projections. Then you get the over-investment, mm-hmm. you get speculative companies raising money, the over-investment. And then if you remember after the dot-com bust, you had these miles and miles of so-called dark fiber because mm-hmm. you had excess capacity uh, in fiber optic cable, which I mean I saw commonly cited about so ninety-five percent excess capacity, and that ran for several years. A bit like the sort of if you think about it, the excess U.S. home building during the real estate bubble, which took you know a couple about, of years to well, work no, off. more than I think it really took from two thousand six to two th- to two thousand twelve before that. Uh, excess build had really just worked its way out of the system. And then the hangover from that is we were underbuilding houses for the rest of the decade because once bitten, twice shy. And then when suddenly there was demand for houses, there's no inventory. There's a shortage. Yeah, that's it. I mean, given now <laughs> what we're going to get round to later, now that a <laughs> 30-year mortgage rate has doubled, I think the Americans are going to be grateful that they didn't do that much building <laughs> in the last few years, because otherwise we would really have uh, a replay of 2007 and huh. That's really quite fascinating. So I mentioned earlier, the book comes out in June 99, pretty auspicious timing. Uh, but it raises the question with the publication of your new book, how often does history repeat itself? Are all of these bubbles and manias and collapses, is it pretty much the same playbook that just substitute internet for railroads, substitute houses for telegrams, do do all these things just follow the same sort of cycle just forward in history? Well, Jim Grant has a comment that, as he says, we're always stepping on the same rake. And I have a, a friend of mine, a financial strategist, lives in Edinburgh called Russell Napier, runs a... He has oh, a, I know the name. He it, wrote a, a, a book on... He, uh, he wrote a book called The Anatomy of the Bear. Uh, the Bear, that's right. An excellent book. He has a, a financial library in Edinburgh called The Library of Mistakes. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that you can learn everything you need to know in finance for an investment career by actually working out the mistakes people have made. And there does seem to be, yes, a, a sort of similar pattern. Although I should add that you know, it certainly doesn't help you on the short side, betting against speculative bubbles. When I was at GMO, we, colleague and, and I, ran a, a sort of quantitative analysis of, of speculative bubbles, and we, we crunched, or at least my assistant did, 10,000 years of data mm-hmm. of various commodity markets and real estate markets and stock markets around the world. And what we found is that bubbles are indeterminate in length mm-hmm. and they also indeterminate as to how high they can go. So if you don't know how long the bubble's going to last and how high it's going to, to rise, uh, then you might be able to identify a bubble and I don't think that's you know, frankly that hard and I think that's useful if you're just you know a long-only investor. You can stay out of the bubble market. Right, but the timing on the downside is really difficult. You, yeah, and, and think what we've been, you know, look, the last decade, we had, you know, people were talking about dot-com 2.0 back in sort of 2012, if you yeah, remember. Yeah. And, you know, I actually, one of my last projects at GMA was to do a sort of 
to look at what was going on from economic sentiment perspective, looking at various different measures, you know, bull-bear ratio, you know, amount of uh, margin loans in the system. I, I can't quite remember what they were. But anyhow, I put them all together, and it looked, you know, that speculative sentiment was very inflated in, mm-hmm. in 2013. And actually, I presented this to GMA clients, and, and Jeremy got up afterwards and said, I think the bull market has longer to run. And, you know, the other day, he was sort of tweaking my notes by saying, you know, reminding me that, that I had been bearish and that he'd been a relatively bullish. Um, but clearly, you know, there was another seven years to mm-hmm. go. And it got pretty, um, what happened in 2020 was nothing like, you know, it was- That's a know, one-off, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know. By the way, I have a, my partner, Michael Batnick, wrote a book that your colleague, Russell Napier, would really appreciate called Big Mistakes, The Best Investor and Their Worst Investments. And he went through the history of George Soros and Warren Buffett and all these, you know, legendary investors and their giant mistakes and what they learned from them. I'll send you guys a copy. You'll appreciate it. That definitely belongs to the Library of Mistakes. Yes, for sure. It's literally exactly what he was discussing. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So again, we see auspicious timing on your part to put out a book on interest rates in the middle of 2022, the most rapid increase in inflation since you know the 1980s, the fastest rising set of rates from central banks, I think you could say ever, from zero to three and a half on the way to four, four and a half percent. Your timing is quite auspicious. When did you first start thinking about, hmm, maybe it's time to write a book about interest rates? Well, Quite a long time ago. I, I think I <laughs> I got interested in the whole subject about a decade ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, I felt when I did this work on the credit boom before the financial crisis, I belonged to the school that thought that when the Greenspan Fed took U.S. Fed funds rate down to 1% after the dot-com bust, that ignited, to my, in my mind, the real estate bubble. Obviously a giant factor. Has anyone actually made a case to say, no, no, keeping rates... Under 2% for three years and under 1% for a year had no impact on real estate? I mean, it's not the only factor, but it's pretty hard to say, oh, no, not relevant. Whether, you know, the Fed under Nobel laureate Bernanke. Yeah, yeah, savings glut. We all all know that's nonsense. Yeah, I mean, I I, I write about that in this new book where Uh money flows off to the emerging markets when dollar rates are low. And then it comes back because <laughs> these guys, are they're not saving. They're actually just buying long dollars. And then treasuries. right. They're buying them to manipulate their currency, China most of all. Um, but then, you know, I suppose the difference between Bernanke and me is that Bernanke has a sort of abstract view of economics, whereas I try and look at what's going on in the real financial world. Well, although, to be fair, for an academic, he actually got to put his theories into practice as Fed chair. Yes, and that's um, <laughs> problematic. I mean, you know, 
do you, do you remember it was it 99 Milton Friedman's 90th birthday and right and, right or no perhaps 2002 Friedman's 90th birthday party in the Fed uh, Bernanke says you know facetiously to Friedman apologizing for the Great Depression on on behalf of the Federal Reserve and ensuring that it won't happen again and then you know five years later we get meltdown you know that Bernanke and the Fed had in particular Bernanke uh, you know, had no inkling of what was about to happen. And then we didn't get a Great Depression, but we then got into this era of extremely low interest rates mm-hmm. and of quantitative easing. And that was associated with a period of what they call secular stagnation or extremely low growth. And we never really got out of that. We Until the pandemic. Well, we didn't get out. I mean, the pandemic was just the last gasp when they went back to quantitative easing and they really became, you know, the House of Lords, British House of Lords wrote a report on quantitative easing last year, which they called a dangerous addiction. And I suppose Bernanke introduced the this financial dope mm-hmm. and I went off, I you know, to work for hedge funds or whatever he does nowadays. He's a consultant. <laughs> He's a consultant. Right. They, uh, they, <laughs> they consult. So let's bring this back to the book, which is really quite fascinating. You start in Babylon with the origins of interest, and you go straight through the most recent boom and bust. How did the concept of paying interest on money begin? Well, what we know is that interest is a very old phenomenon, five millennia at least. It, it, before Babylon, I mean... Uh... Well, so if you look at the words in in the ancient languages, including Assyrian and Greek and Latin and Egyptian, all the words for, for interest are linked to, to uh, calves and lambs and kid goats. So th- there is this sense that interest must have existed in prehistoric societies. And the idea was, you know, I'll lend you my cow, um, but a year later I want the cow and the calf back and you can keep, if it has <laughs> the next, milk, you can keep the milk. No, you can keep the extra car. So, and actually, as I cite in the book, you know, the Americans were still, you know, in, in at the beginning of the 20th century, they out in the you know Midwest or whatever, people were still lending livestock and demanding uh, interest payments in the the offspring of the livestock that i think is the origin and then as i say in ancient mesopotamia these you know which had large cities and and trading quite in a way quite capitalistic and you can see that interest was used on loans uh, contains a sort of risk factor that people were u- were using borrowing and paying interest to finance shipping ventures to finance local you know local businesses and trade crafts and also um you know for for financing the purchase of houses so you you see that in this sort of proto what you might call a proto-capitalistic society interest is serving a number of different important functions and my my reason for going back uh, to that point is to is to try and underline how um how important uh, the function of interest is. Um, in fact, the the Yale historian 
uh, William Gertzman says that the invention of interest is the most important invention in the history of finance because it allows people to transact across time. Mm -hmm. And my thought, you know, when I was doing this work is we're at a moment of zero interest and of negative interest in many countries um, and that the zero and negative interest were the sort of second most important development in the history of finance and possibly the most, to my mind, worrying development. Huh. We're going to talk more about negative interest rates in a moment, but I have to reference the title of the book, The Price of Time. Interest and interest rates are all about being able to engage in commercial transactions over time. It, essentially, that's what interest rates allow. Yes. So time, as Ben Franklin says, is money. Time is valuable. Time is our most precious possession. And we must use time well. All our economic actions are taking a place across time. And we need to sort of coordinate those actions. So how much are we going to save? How much are we going to invest? What type of investments are we going to make? What valuations will we place upon the house that we're purchasing? Whether, you know, should we invest in this country? How much risk should we take? All, all these factors have an interest rate embedded in them. And um, the American economist Irving Fisher says that interest is an omnipresent phenomenon. And really what I'm trying to do with this book is to take this oldest of financial institutions, this omnipresent phenomenon that to my mind had been neglected and by modern economists who, who really just see interest as a lever to control inflation and ignore these other functions. And the thrust of the argument of the second half of the book is that the when the central banks focused only on using the interest to prevent the price level from falling after the global financial crisis, mm -hmm. they neglected the impact the saving has on valuations, on the allocation of capital, on savings and pensions, on the amount of risk-taking, and on capital flows and the, the direction of capital flows. And in each of these other areas, we see, and I chronicle in the book, problems building up. You know, so if you take, for instance, um, valuation, you know, we just discussed, you know, discussed earlier how valuation of the U.S. stock market was very high last year, but aggregate household wealth uh, that the Fed actually gathers the data Record on. highs. Six times GDP against a, an average of three and a half times GDP. And what you can see if you chart them, and I show a chart in the book, is I show the household wealth with the Fed funds rate. And each time the Fed funds rate goes down, the household wealth sort of pushes higher and higher and higher. So that's obviously a, a source of instability because then when you raise rates, hey presto, the markets come down in tandem with the bond stocks. The everything bubble gives way to the everything bust. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So clearly the cover of the book has an hourglass showing time uh, slowly seeping away. How important is time to those of us working uh, in finance and engaging in transactions where capital is put at, at risk? Well, I, I mean, it's vitally important. I mean, first of all, I'd say time is important to all human beings. And what's called time preference, mm -hmm. people's tendency to prefer the present to the future, to dis what we call discount the future, mm -hmm. it appears to be a universal phenomenon. Just people, some people are, another way of take, talking about it is, is impatience. Mm -hmm. Some people are more impatient than others. So, so ev everyone has their own um, internal interest or discount rate. In in finance, all finance is is about transacting across times, lo lending, investing, and so forth. Uh, it, it's it's absolutely essential. There's no activity in finance that doesn't involve an interest rate. And I mean, I cite a description of you know the failure of the Soviet economy. Mm -hmm. Even if you have a Soviet planned economy, you need to allocate resources across time, and if you're not guided by the interest rate, as which the Soviets weren't, you're going to have these misallocations of capital that eventually clog up the system. So let's talk about that. I love this quote. Interest rates are the most important signal in a market-based economy and the universal price affecting all others. You're suggesting, because that signal was missing from the Soviet economy, it eventually crashed and burned. Yeah, I mean, among other reasons. <laughs> so, but no, what, I'm say, what I'm saying is that every society, because it's innate to human, because you know all humans are constrained by their mortality, all actions take place, economic actions take place across time. That even if you didn't have a capitalist or market economy, something would need to ration or to direct your resources or direct your behavior across time. In a way, it's more explicit in a capitalist economy because you're paying a certain rate of interest on your loan or you have a certain um, required hurdle rate on your investment or you're applying a certain discount in the valuation of an asset. So in that sense, you know, the time value of money is the sort of first thing one learns in finance. So prior to the financial crisis, I never thought about zero interest rates and I certainly never thought about negative interest rates, the the decade that followed that seemed to have create all of these negative rates. How do they affect economies? How do they affect trade? And, and how do they affect the consumer? So the zero rate leads to these buildups of financial instability and at the same time uh, contributes to 
a misallocation of capital. But you're not getting any yield on fixed income, so you tend to go to more speculative. Exactly. You know, you, uh, the whole Tina, there is no alternative. Exactly. Steers you, you into equity. Yeah, I cite you know the the uh, English 19th century finance writer Walter Badgett, where he says. John Bull, you know, the eponymous Englishman, John Bull can stand many things, but he cannot stand 2%. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when people, you know, we talk about yield chasing or, or carry trading mm -hmm. uh, when rates are very low. With the negative rates, do you remember uh, <laughs> the argument with negative rates was that they were going to turbocharge the economies. This was a phrase used by Ken Rogoff, the Harvard economist, who wrote mm -hmm. a book called The Curse of Cash in 20, I think 2016, where he argued, you know, that you need to get rid of cash so that we could have properly negative rates. Well, the way I see negative rate is it's it's a tax on capital, mm -hmm. which is instituted by an unelected central uh, bank, central bank or, or policymaker without anyone without anyone voting for it. Uh, you know, so these people who wanted us all to have accounts with the central bank, with the central bank, at, you know, having an authority just takes much of our capital away, seem to undermine property rights. But leaving aside that, where we see you know, in places like Japan and Europe, there was no turbocharging of the economies. In fact, as you know, uh, banks can't make money <laughs> at negative rates, and they are reluctant to lend. This is a point that Bill Gross, PIMCO's former sort of bond king, was making very early on in the era of zero rates. So, you know, he says it's sort of created as was like sort of leukemia in the financial system, the negative mm -hmm. rates that destroyed the vitality of the banking system. But he said, you know, he says that um, you need positive carry for the financial system to carry on making loans. Now, negative rates make things a lot worse. I mean, what you saw when the Japanese went over to negative rates in 2016, you know, there were articles in the newspaper about Japanese, you know, buying safes to store their money. And one of the large German banks also announced that it was going to be storing cash. And then you get these absurdities. So the note, I don't think it's an impetus to credit growth, but you have these absurdities like Danish home buyers actually receiving payments on their mortgages. So you're having a transfer of wealth from savers to borrowers. And then, and then you have which makes no sense. No, no. I mean, look, we've been living in Alice in Wonderland world, you know. I mean, I think you know, it's it's just a Lewis Carroll world. And no, but I mentioned somewhere that long dated Japanese bonds at negative yields. That that some Japanese life insurance guy who I cite says that yields don't matter, and people were buying <laughs> buying long dated bonds at negative yields in anticipation. Of them going lower. Of of yields going lower. And therefore, you could get capital gains from bonds with negative yields. And if you wanted income, you had to buy equities. So, <laughs> How is that any different than the people buying, you know, some of the coins you mentioned or the NFTs? You're buying a negative yielding instrument. I'll give you $100 for a century and in 100 years give me back $98. How is that any different than buying an NFT? Well, I mean, you're right. It's, it's, Other than you get your ninety-eight dollars. Yeah, back. I mean, you've got the credit <laughs> of the government. But look, look at what happened in the gilts market recently in, in or... the UK, quite recently. Mm -hmm. So you had these long-dated index-linked gilts. The one I said is a 2073 linker. Last so year, the equivalent of a 50-year bond here in the US. Yeah, but actually trading on a negative yield at last year of 2.5%. 
2.5%, been trading down for a long time. This year, that bond has lost 85% of its value at the trough before the Bank of England intervened to try and sort of stop the gilts market completely blowing apart. It was it was yielding to redemption 1.1%. <laughs> so you, you blew 85% of capital to end up with an asset with an expected real return held to redemption of just over 1%. Doesn't sound like a great trade to me. Uh, it was a trade that, as you know, the UK pension funds engaged in uh, to the tune of hundreds of billions of, of, of pounds. And to make things more interesting, they use leverage too. So there, oh. there is a sort of really a story for our times of you know pension funds induced to um, because of the low interest rates and because that made you know affected their the present value of their liabilities as your discount rate again they're forced to go in and do sort of Walter Badgett type stupid things of leveraging up mm-hmm. these long dated bonds while at the same time owning stuff that you know would have had a higher return but then getting into a mess so. So let's talk about what's been going on around the world and here in the United States. We have inflation at its highest level in 40 years. How much blame do you assign to central banks for the current circumstances? How significant were those quantitative easing and zero interest rate policies to the current spate of inflation? What do you think? I mean, pretty significant. I think it's one of many things, but obviously a very big one. Yeah, I mean, the inflation is complex phenomenon. <laughs> right. But uh, we had massive fiscal stimulus yeah, in the yeah, U.S. No, but, yeah, but and the then fi- the closing and reopening, uh, but within the longstanding environment of zero for a decade. Yeah, so I think, you know, mentioned quantitative easing becoming a dangerous addiction. Initially, the quantitative easing after the financial crisis was a time where the sort of financial system was deleveraging. The money wasn't really making its way to Main Street. Mm-hmm. Beside Main Street was, you know, high unemployment and so on and so forth. Um, you know, it's different when, you know, by 2020 with the lockdowns, and not just the US, Britain and... Around the world. Um, around the world. You had, you know, I think $8 trillion of central bank QE or balance sheet expansion. And roughly, you know, dollar for dollar increase in in government spending around the world so and then you know obviously you know people were just staying at home with their stimmy checks right and they um they were going out and you know buying meme stocks having you know looked up on wall street bets uh which stocks to be targeting and you know and borrowing at two percent from robin hood and, and so here's the question if artificially low rates helped get us into this mess Will raising rates help get us out of this mess? No. <laughs> I'll tell you what I did. I mean, the thrust of the book is that you've got yourself into a perilous position. Too much debt, too much risk-taking, overinflated valuations, too little real savings, too much financial engineering, mm-hmm. and too little you know, real investment. And once you're in that position, it's very difficult to get out of it. Do you remember after the financial crisis, there was commonly used this phrase, you know, kicking the can. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for really for the last, you know, you could say for the last 25 years or so, uh, we've been 
kicking the can. And now we've reached the point where we have inflation, as we say, and it's more difficult for the central banks to come in and kick the can any further because you know they're in danger of losing credibility. The can is kicking back. The can got bigger. It's like a sort of quantum can. Each time you kick it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So we're now sort of sitting under a massive can. So I want to roll back to the financial crisis because I suspect I'm reading between the lines a little bit or maybe not so much. When we rescued a lot of the banks and then kept rates very low for the next seven, eight years, uh, we ignored some of the things we had learned previously when we go back to Walter Bagehot, uh, shouldn't we have taken these banks and allowed them to go to that lovely building with the columns downtown, the bankruptcy court, and allow all these banks to, you know, wipe out the equity holders, give the bond holders a haircut, and clean up their balance sheets and send them back into the world revitalized? Like the zombie banks we kept on life support of low rates wasn't fixing one problem eventually setting us up for the next problem. Yeah, I think so. Well, uh, you know, the policymakers said, and central banks, they say there was no alternative. And if you criticize us, you were wishing another Great Depression. But in fact, actually, I cite right towards the end of the book the case of Iceland as a counterfactual. Because mm-hmm. what happened in Iceland, Icelanders, you know, went completely crazy. Yes. Uh, in, you remember their, their debt, was, you know, foreign debt was 10 times GDP. Their current account deficit was 25% of GDP. You know, they, they'd completely given up fishing. They'd all turn into bankers. Right. And then it blew. But Iceland was not part of the EU, so no one was really coming to their rescue. The Fed didn't offer, you know, credit lines, <laughs> dollar swaps to the Icelandic central bank. And so poor Iceland uh, was just sort of left on its own. And what's interesting is they sort of followed that course that you described. And the big banks went bust. They were put into receivership. Domestic depositors were protected. The mortgage borrowers who interest rates went up, but mortgage borrowers were protected by giving taxation relief on their interest payments. And the foreign debt was defaulted on. And currency declined. There were capital controls. But after a few years... Capital controls were taken off. And this is what's most interesting, is that the Icelandic economy transformed away from finance towards tourism and technology as well. So you had a, you this Schumpeterian creative destruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government debt relative to GDP came down. The economy, you know, within six or seven years, Iceland was growing had recovered all its losses and was growing faster than any other European country. So making the creditors take a haircut, forcing them to take a haircut, goes back to these ancient Mesopotamian practices of you know of debt jubilees. That's what they originated the debt jubilee, the giving up the writing off of debt, um, which also the Egyptians and the Israelites did. So and that's seen as a sort of left-wing idea, but I don't think it necessarily has to be. If you've made loans that are bad loans, then it's right that the creditor should take a haircut. Right. Uh, hence, bankruptcy courts exist for a reason, right? They shouldn't 
they're not just there to show off the architecture of those columns. I never, I mean, as I mentioned in the book, you know, the <laughs> insolvency rates were sort of absurdly low. We talked about the Great Depression. The new headlines were, oh, you know, the worst financial, <laughs> the worst crisis since the Great Depression. It was called the Great Recession. And then actually, if you look at insolvencies, they were lower than the insolvencies after the dot-com bust right. or the insolvencies after the savings and loan crisis of the early 1990s. So you, you didn't get your bankruptcy. You said you get the zombies, and the zombies are sort of living dead, which is sort of death to a capitalist economy because they, right. they, you know, they discourage entrepreneurs. They discourage investment. No, they discourage productivity growth. No doubt about that. And there are uh, you know uh, ramifications and unanticipated consequences that we're still living with to this day, whether it's a very low growth rate that begot the rise of authoritarianism, both here and abroad, you can trace that back to not allowing the banks to go through that process. Yeah, well, I do. I mean, my chapter, the book ends with the, called The New Road to Serfdom, and the argument Channeling Hayek in yeah, your... Friedrich Hayek, the, the Austrian economist, philosopher, and he wrote a book in the Second World War thinking that the advance of the state during the war into the economy and into people's lives was not going to retreat, and it wasn't really right. There was a sort of retreat. But my argument, drawing on Hayek, is that if you take away the universal price, the, the price of interest that guides the capitalist system, then the system will fail. And the more system fails, the more the authorities have to come in to prop things up until you get a position where you no longer in a way have a capitalist society. And I suppose you know, that's at the, you know, the juncture we are today. Are, are we going to sort of you know, go through the problems of adjusting from the low rates to normal rates, whatever you know, whatever that takes, or are we going to just shift into a sort of a different type of paradigm in which the state allocates capital and controls saving? That I'm not saying that we're going down that route. I'm just raising the question that Hayek talks about people sort of stumbling, progressing without really in, no real intention, blind progression. And one senses that this has sort of been a blind progression. And no one, I mean, it's absolutely clear to me that no one in any position of authority considered the actual ramifications of monetary policy and mm. of these low rates. Quite fascinating. I only have you for a few more minutes before we have to send you off to the airport. So let's blow through these five questions in, in a few minutes, starting with, Tell us what kept you entertained during the pandemic. What were you listening to or watching? Well, we watched Succession. Right. And we watched then the other HBO, the... White Lotus? I watched White Lotus. I watched um, the, um, you know, the TV, the series, uh, Game of Thrones. Oh, okay. We watched a lot of Game of Thrones. Right. Tell us about some of your mentors who helped to shape your career. Well, uh, when I was writing... Devil Take the High Miss, I went to see Charles Kindleberger outside out, outside Cambridge, Massachusetts. Crispin Odie, who I mentioned, mm -hmm. commissioned me to do um, that work on the credit, which has been very useful for me. Another investment firm, Marathon Asset Management, a friend there called Charles Carter. I edited a couple of books for them on something called the Capital Cycle Theory of Investment, which 
has been sort of quite important to me. And then Jeremy Grantham at GMO has uh, you know, has been that, my mentor, I'd say. That's an impressive list. Let's talk about other books in addition to what you've written. What are some of your favorites and what are you reading now? My wife and I go to India quite a lot. And my favorite novelist is Arkane Narayan, who Graham Greene said was the best writer in the English language. And, mm. as he, and I actually op- I start that book with a, an epigraph of, from Narayan's The Financial Expert. On the sort of Indian thing, I've been reading um, these colonial thrillers set in 1920s Calcutta by an Indian Scottish writer called Mukherjee. I can't quite remember his first name. They're pretty good. Have you come across Vaclav Smil, the... Vaclav Smil, you know, is the Canadian scientist who who writes about energy and civilization, mm-hmm. and has written. Last year, he wrote a book called *The Great Transition*, and this year, he's written a book about um, called *How the World Really Works*. And Smil's argument is, you know, is to look at how mankind has moved from one energy source to another. Hmm. I'll uh, definitely, I'll I think definitely he, look at that. Yeah, that yeah uh, Bill Gates says he's his favorite. I don't huh. know if that's a recommendation. Really or interesting. Not. Our last two questions: What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is interested in a career in either history, journalism, or finance? <sighs> sort of almost think again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think academia is a place to go into now. Journalism, you know, is much less. In my grandfather worked at Reuters. You know, he was mm-hmm. Shanghai bureau chief in the 1930s. And you know, in those days, you could earn a decent living and have a decent career. In it's, it's hard. We're in Bloomberg. You know, the guys here are paid reasonably. Financial journalism pays. Most other journalism doesn't pay. So I'd probably say if you're going to go into journalism, do financial journalism. And in finance, huh, you know, again, I, in my view, I went into finance as I say, almost cynically, it actually then became a calling for me because I actually turned out to be genuinely interested in finance and finance history. You know, people are drawn into finance because, you know, people are paid better. And we've had the financial sector growing and the markets rising. Now, if we've reached a cusp and the market's going to be not rising any future, then actually that sort of premium that you earn from finance is, is perhaps not going to be there. And I suppose... If I was sort of recommending someone I, and said they want to go into investment finance, I would say, you know, are you sure your talents can't be used more beneficially elsewhere? Because if you think you're just going to enter into this um, sector because you're going to be paid five to ten times more than anyone else, uh, than the average, then I wouldn't be sure that that's going to be the case hmm. going forward. And our final question what do you know about the world of speculation, bubbles, interest rates today you wish you knew 30 or 40 years or so ago when you were first starting out? Huh. Well, I, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know any. I mean, I didn't know anything then. I mean, it's, look, we've been living through the most extraordinary period. We knew we had... I used to think the dot-com bubble was amazing. It, it was until <laughs> we supersized it. No, no, I think, that, and then I thought, you know, wow, it wasn't the security, you know, subprime security, so that was extraordinary. And then, you know, we had, you know, the pandemic, everything bubble, 
And, you know, we have lived through the most extraordinary period in the history of finance. I had no idea <laughs> that that was going to be the case when I started my career. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Edward, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Edward Chancellor, author of Devil Takes the Hindmost and The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the 450 or so conversations we've had previously. You can find those at Spotify, iTunes, Bloomberg, YouTube, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reading list at ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps us put these conversations together each week. Sarah Livesey is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is my project manager. Sean Russo runs our research. Paris Wald is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.